Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Well, 50% of adults in the United States are married. And there's probably a higher percentage, another percentage of those people who, of people who are not married who wish that they were. Um, that's, uh, the, the percentage of people who are married today is 8% lower than it was about 30 years ago. That's changing in our world. But nonetheless, marriage still is viewed as a very, very valuable thing. In fact, uh, almost two-thirds of people who get divorced get remarried. They're going to go for it again, even though it was hard the first time. So marriage really seems to uh, have a pull on us. Now, if we are going to understand what marriage is about and to really be able to not only benefit from a person, but for it to be in our lives what God wants us to be, we got to go back to the beginning. And that's the whole idea of this series. Life makes more sense when you start in the beginning. Marriage makes a lot more sense when you start in the beginning. Now, are you guys up for a little math lesson today? Yes. Who loves math? Wow, quite a few of you. Hey. All right. So here's the deal. If 50% of adults in America are married, what percent isn't? It's not a trick question. About half the people are not married. And so uh, when we typically preach sermons on marriage, you know, uh, my concern is that there are half of you and half of you who are watching who kind of check out. It's not for me. Well, I want to say something to you today that we are going to consider singleness today as well and talk about God's plans for that. And so let me say this right up front, that God instituted both singleness and marriage for his good purposes in our lives. They both have a role to play, and, and well, we'll, just, we'll talk more about that as we go. Now, why do you suppose, what is the number one reason people that get, get married? Anybody want to take a shot? Love, exactly. 88% of those surveys said love was the number one reason why they got married. Uh, very close after that, 81% said it was because they were looking for a lifetime commitment with someone, which is very closely connected to the next one, which is like 76% or something like that. So they, they want a companionship, okay? Someone to be with. And so we see that. They, someone you can love and share your life with. And... and, and um, are those good reasons? Yes. They are good reasons. Are they good enough? Hmm. That's something to think about. And if we're going to figure that out, we have to go back to the beginning. So let's do that. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. Marriage is, was, will be God's idea. Genesis chapter 2. And by the way, said if you're, if you're single and you didn't hear what I said, hang in there. We're going to talk about that today. God's good purposes for you. 
if you're single. Genesis chapter 2, that's page 2 and then on page 3 on the Bible that's in the chairs there. We're going to start in verse number 18. Before I read, let me say, so chapter 1, we get this big overview of how God created everything. Chapter 2, we get the specifics of how God created man and breathed into him the breath of life. And we get the prohibition, or excuse me, getting him put in the Garden of Eden and saying you can eat of any tree you want except for the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Uh, and we kind of know how that story goes. We'll talk more about that in just a few weeks. But then starting in verse number 18, we get the foundation, the basis for marriage from God's perspective. Verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, let's just stop here. He, um, he says it's not good for man to be alone. The idea is it's not just, this is not just about marriage here. I think that speaks to a bigger picture that we are created to be relational beings, okay? And it's not good for us to be alone. Now, there are times and places in life where we have to be alone. We get that, but the idea is overall we need relationships. And so, uh, I mean, just give you a quick example. My father, in the last few years of his life, we, my brother and I both noticed that when he would, he, he kind of stayed to himself for the most part, um, and his, his health was slowly deteriorating and our interactions with him, his, his, his cognitive clarity kind of seemed to go down and he would get really sick and end up in the hospital and then they would put him in a rehab place and he'll spend six weeks in rehab, you know, getting muscle strength back. And he was always so much better at the end of that rehab time. And it wasn't just because they were making him exercise, okay? That was part of it. But part of it, he was interacting with people off and on throughout his day. And he would be much clearer, okay? We are designed to be social beings. We need interactions with other people. So if, if you're an introvert here today, yeah, that's okay. You don't have to be around people as much as, as some of the rest of us. <laughs> but you still need people. You still need people at some level. In fact, I've, I've thought of this and I don't, you know, I don't know how it goes. I'm, I'm, I've often thought that if, if something happened to my wife, if she were to pass away and go to heaven, that I, I could probably stay in my cave most of the time. Whether physically there or not, right? And I've actually thought, you know, I would need to on purpose make sure that I get out and get with people. I would need to make sure I go with my family. They'd probably be dragging me anyway. But with other Christians, right? I mean, actually on purpose, getting out there and doing that because if I didn't, it's not good to be alone. All right, now, it's bigger than this. So God is, is, is dealing with this idea that it's not good to be alone in a, in a very deep and personal way here in this story, okay? So let's continue. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. That, that's like him, but different. Different in a way that complements him, okay? Uh, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air. And I believe that's, that's covered in chapter one, where it says God made the animals and the birds and all that. And now we've, he's, he's made Adam, and now he brings these animals to Adam. And he says, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Now, just a little bit of a sidetrack. We're gonna read the scripture in a minute. But when God gave uh, man, humans, 
and then specifically here Adam, dominion over creation, God is honoring that right here. Who gets to decide what we're going to call the animals? Adam, the one that I've entrusted dominion of this creation to. Okay, so let's continue reading. Verse 20, so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. All right, so I think God also, by bringing all the animals before him and Adam responding name, Adam starts to see, you know, huh, there's two of those kind, and there's two, there's only one of me. How does this work? Okay, and so he, I think he becomes aware of this in verse 21. It says, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs, God took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And by the way, that's where this sermon title came from today. It's a one rib man as opposed to a one woman man, right? He gave up a rib and got a wife, okay? Uh, why did God do it this way? You know, we, we are oftentimes, you know, try to suppose what God's up to and what he did. And, and sometimes we can come up with some pretty good reasons. I, all I can say is I think that the intention was to communicate that there is this oneness. This, God didn't make two separate beings. He made one human being and out of that human being made another. So they are very much connected. And you realize that this is going to take toward marriage with Adam and with Eve, but... I guess we're all connected too, aren't we? As human beings. There is a connection between all of us. And when we understand that and honor that, God can use that. But anyway, how did he do this? I got a rib, what do I do with it? <laughs> well, I thought about it, you know, I don't know, who knows how, because God could have just spoke him into being, right? Her, her into being, but he doesn't, he takes the rib. And how did he do it? And I thought, well, this morning hit me that if, if Jesus can take a few fish and some biscuits and feed 5,000 people with it, I guess he can get a human being out of a rib, right? All right, so we don't know, but he did. So Eve is special made. She's out of Adam. She's part of Adam. She's with Adam in that sense. Verse 23, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's this actual connection she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. All right? And in the Hebrew language, that's very colorful because she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Okay? So there's this connection. Then it, then it says this, and this is a, uh, not said by Adam, but Adam uh, uh, said by whoever the Lord inspired to write this, which was most likely Moses at this point. It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. But this idea of that when, when um, were there any other, were there any parents here at this time? No. But it's setting it up that this, we're going to see, this is a relationship in and unto itself. And it's a relationship that you leave other natural relationships to enter into. And this idea of, uh, it says, and be joined, it, mean, it also can be translated to cling, okay, to come together. This relationship becomes the primary 
relationship. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And then, of course, the sexual intimacy that is alluded to here in verse number 25. All right, so let's go back to chapter 1 now. And, and review something. Verse 26 in chapter one, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, man is a them here. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So there's the idea of having children. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I would say to you that after there were more people on the earth and many more people multiplied on the earth, that this idea of uh, filling the earth, right, uh, and multiplying extends beyond having physical children. It extends to those people that I would seek to influence for the Lord, that I would seek to bring into a relationship with the Lord. Should we as a church be multiplying? Yes, okay. And that's one of the ways that we bring creation under the Lordship of, of Christ. Okay. Uh, but notice there, again in verse 27, the, the whole idea is this. When God makes man in his image, in his likeness, he makes them what? Both male and female. Because within uh, the nature of God, there are aspects which we would consider to be masculine. And there are aspects in him which we would consider to be feminine. And so in the man and the woman together, capturing those different aspects and how they intertwine with each other and how they work together. All right, so let's jump over to the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, that's on page 1134 in the Bible that's in the chairs there. Jesus is gonna to refer to, the, to those events that we just read about. Um, so the religious leaders were always out to get Jesus, always out to catch him in something that they could try to accuse him about, and so they're asking him questions, and, and so they said, well, hey Jesus, uh, you know, Moses says we can get a divorce if, you know, if we want to, so it's okay to get a divorce for any reason. They're hoping they can catch him in something. Well, Jesus responds in verse 4. It says, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus goes back, we already talked about it, and looks at Genesis and acts like what? It's history, right? Settled history. Okay. So he says, didn't you read this? Verse 6, he says, so then, and, and I should have said this, excuse me, one flesh. One flesh is more than just the sexual relationship. One flesh speaks to the whole being and that there is a connectedness there. When people get married the way God intends for them to get married, there becomes a oneness in that relationship. They no longer go through life as individuals separate, but they go through life as individuals together, married, okay? You know, and this is where their property becomes common, shared. Their goals become common and shared and, and on it. So this is the idea of one flesh. All right, verse six. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, 
let not man separate. So we learn here that Jesus referring to what happened here in Genesis and God's formation of the marriage relationship tells us that it's intended to be permanent. That's God's intention. So that when, when marriages occur, his intention is that they are permanent, that they last for a lifetime. Um, and so the question, we're not gonna read it here, but they, they said, well, then why did Moses say we could get divorced? Jesus said, well, Moses told you you get divorced because of the problems that sin has brought into the world. Sin comes into the world and, and problems occur and sometimes divorce is the reality. But it's not God's intention for marriage. Okay, does that make sense? In other words, if you're here today and you've been divorced, uh, this is not a put down on you at all. You're experiencing the curse of sin in our world. And it could be this, someone else's sin that actually led you to divorce. Could be other issues, whatever. But it's, it's just not, it wasn't God's intent. God's intent, and, and by the way, young people and those of you who are still single, thinking about getting married one day, you're gonna go, you need to go into marriage with that intent. By the way, that changes so much. If, if you're married and you think, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but if you're married and you get married thinking, well, I can always get out of this if I want. Well, yeah, you guys say, ah, but right, that's the reality for a lot of people, isn't it? In our day and age. They get in thinking, hoping, it'll, but, you know, but I can get out of it. This doesn't go the way I want. And that's just, guess what happens when things get hard then? You've already opened your door to get out. Rather than work, I'm, I'm talking more about that. I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> All right. And then, so then they said, his disciples say, well, wow, Lord, if that's the case, if you can't get, just get divorced, you know, then it's better not to get married. <laughs> and Jesus says, well, no, that's not, not true for everybody, okay? And he says, there's, there's people who uh, don't get married just because they never had a desire to get married. There are people who don't get married because of circumstances which man has, you know, and life have put on them. And then there are people who choose not to get married because they, they think God wants them to live a certain way and do certain things that requires them that it's better if they stay single. So he, he talks about that, and we'll talk about that in a little while. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Yeah. Ephesians chapter 5 passage that talks a lot about marriage, directly about marriage, but I want to start one verse before what we typically think of, and probably one verse before it's divided into paragraphs in your Bible. The Lord is giving some instructions about being filled with the Spirit and how we live that, and then he says this in verse 21 of chapter 5, and by the way, we're on page 1346 if you're looking for it in the Bible that's there. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Fear of God meaning that we are reverencing God. What he wants is what's most important to us. And so we submit to one another. What does this word submit mean? The word submit means this. It, you know, I mean, I don't know what you think it means. Sometimes we, we feel like it means somebody's pushing us down and on top of us, submitting. But no, the word submit is the idea of placing yourself under. Okay, we place ourselves under. And it says here that we are to do this for each other. So there are times in life where I need to, I need, I can observe what's going on in your life, I know, and I need to submit myself under you. I need to come under you to be a help to you. Or maybe I submit my, my personal desires, or I submit my time, or I submit my resources, or whatever. But I come under you to support you and help you. And there's times in my life 
Well, I need you to do that for me, right? And so the Lord says, do that for each other. I want you to understand that this is the context. This is when Paul starts talking about marriage, a mutual submission. So let's continue. And so the question is, how do wives submit? How do husbands submit? What does this look like in marriage? So let's take a look. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And we're gonna read on down. In fact, let's just jump down verse 33. We'll come to it again, but verse 33 says, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so that is a summary verse for what Paul just taught. So when he, which is it, wives? Are you supposed to submit to your husbands or are you supposed to respect your husbands? But nobody wants to jump in the middle of that one, right? I think that this respect is the key understanding that this submission is a genuine respect shown towards your husband. This, in other words, you are coming under your husband to hold him up and build him up. And how do you do it? You're submitting, but how do you do it? By genuinely respecting him, thinking highly of him, valuing what he thinks, looking to him for help. What, Okay, but it's a very purposeful coming under. All right? Uh, so many things we could say it's not. Let's just say what it is and stop there. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, do you notice something right away? When we're talking to the wife about how she submits herself to her husband, we talk about the church and how it respects the Lord. Okay, and now we're talking about Christ, I mean about the husband loving his wife, we're talking about how does Christ love the church. So you see what, the, the, what uh, Paul's doing here? Okay, he's teaching us about both. Let's continue reading. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Very sacrificial love. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That's what he's doing in our life day in and day out, working on us. Verse 27, here's where it's headed, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, the church, should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. So he's saying here that husbands, we are to love our wives for their well-being. We are to love our wives and minister to her and help her to become everything that God made her to be. Right? And, and to uh, be a part of that. Uh, and the end result being is that my wife was unbelievably beautiful on our wedding day. And we were joking this morning about the skin on our faces. And I was actually joking, I think she, but about mine, not hers. But I tell you, when I think of my wife today, she is more beautiful today than she was then. You see, because we're seeing this, God has changed her. God has grown her, and I've got to be a part of that. Sometimes I've been an obstacle to that. 
but I've been able to be a part of it. So, uh, verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. We are one flesh, so we nourish our one flesh and we cherish our one flesh. Verse 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And we get a quote again from Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Okay, so do you see what Paul just said? He said, I'm giving you instruction on marriage, and I am giving you good instruction on marriage. But guess what else I'm giving you? I'm really teaching you about Christ and the church. And he says, nevertheless, even though it's so, it isn't just a doctrinal lesson here. Nevertheless, each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So it is about both. All right, let's go to Revelation 21. But so we see this picture. We saw the picture, the image of God portrayed in male and female together. And we see the picture of Christ in the church. And then we see how the Lord feels about this in Revelation chapter 21. That's page 1424, starting in verse number nine. This is after everything's done on earth, okay? Everything's done on earth. All the tribulation, the return of Christ, the millennial kingdom, all that stuff. New heavens, new earth. Verse nine. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So let's stop right there. We've already seen the symbolism. Jesus is the symbol of the husband, the groom, the man in a marriage relationship. We, the church, are the symbol of the bride, the wife, the woman in the marriage relationship. He says, let me show you the wife, the bride. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And it goes on and talks about the glory of this church. You say, wait, the lamb, the bride, what, the city? <laughs> well, my sense is, my understanding here is that who is populating the new Jerusalem? We are. We the church, the bride of Christ. And in Revelation where he uses so much symbolism, he's trying to portray to us how the Lord views us as this amazing, glorious, and if you go and read the description, right? That's how he views us. As his people. Okay? Now, I say all that to help you understand that, that God has a design for marriage that is going to communicate a lot of stuff. And so here is his design. Let's take a look at it. God's design for marriage. Go ahead. It's an exclusive, intimate relationship between a man and a woman intended to last for a lifetime for the purpose of glorifying God by representing and serving him in the world. Serving him, exercising dominion, you know, taking what's under our control and using it for God and then influencing others to do the same, seeking to bring it under the lordship of 
Christ. So an exclusive, intimate relationship between a man and a woman. By the way, let's stop. Can you see how if we jettison Genesis 1, 2, 3, we jettison that, that marriage can become all sorts of things that God never intended for it to be? See, that's why it makes much more sense if we go back to the beginning. All right, an exclusive intimate relationship between a man and woman intended to last for a lifetime for the purpose of glorifying God by representing and serving him in the world. Now, where do you see that love is the reason we should get married? Should husbands love their wives? And even though it isn't stated there, elsewhere it says, it, should wives love their husbands? Yes. Yeah, and respect. But he doesn't say that. You know, if you fall in love, oh, that's the reason to get married. I would say to you that far too many people have fallen in love with people they never should have got married to. And we'll talk about how we get there a little bit. So let's talk about God's design for marriage. Let's talk about what it looks like and understand it. All right, the first one is this, that marriage is the core enduring relationship in a family. In a family, that's God's intention, that the marriage be the core enduring relationship. By the way, when you have a household where there's a good marriage, no perfect marriage is allowed, okay? When you have a household with a good marriage where the God's intent for marriage is, is what's binding them together, that uh, that produces tremendous stability in a household. And, and when a nation's households have great stability, the nation has much greater stability. Are we hurting today in our nation? A lot of that can be traced back to the fact that we are no longer, we as a nation have embraced what God says marriage is about. It is the core enduring relationship, providing stability. The second thing I understand about this is that, uh, no, go back if you would. I, I, I tricked you there, Sergey. <laughs> second thing to understand about this idea is that marriage is the relationship that exists before the children come. And it is the relationship that will endure after the children come, right? It is the core relationship of a, of a, of a family. Now, um, think about this. I, far too often I see it in a society for sure, and sometimes I see it creep in amongst us, and that is that the children become more important in the family than the marriage. And children are everything. And we set aside, we don't focus on a marriage relationship because we're doing all this stuff for the kids and making sure. And do you know what your kids, your kids, your kids, if you're listening, your kids, do you know one of the things that is the most valuable thing that you could ever give them? And that is a stable marriage. Now, if you're here today, oh, I'm not married, just chill, because God is big. God is powerful. God is gracious. He can work in your life. Will there be things you have to deal with? Yeah, but don't give it. But I'm just trying to say that, right? What a, what a wonderful thing. And this is why it's interesting to note that adult children, when parents get divorced after kids are adults, do you know those adult children still struggle with that? Because this thing that, you know, is supposed to be enduring and stable, something that they count on in life, all of a sudden isn't anymore. And that, you know, 
throws everything out of kilter and trying to figure it out. So it's important that you focus, if you have kids, that you focus on your marriage relationship. It is the enduring relationship. And it's the old analogy, if you're on an airplane traveling with a child and all of a sudden the cabin depressurizes and the, the oxygen mask drop, what is your instinctual thing to do? To get the oxygen mask and try to get on your child and make sure they're okay, right? And what happens to you? You pass out and you can't help anybody. And so what do they tell you? When they always in the, you know, the pre-flight announcements, they tell you, if that happens, put your own oxygen mask on first because then you'll be able to take care of the little one and help them, okay? Same in your marriage. Take care of your marriage. Um, don't let, you, you're doing your children a favor if sometimes you say no to something they might want or something that society might expect. You say no to them because you're caring for your marriage. All right, that makes sense? Okay, all right, so marriage is the core enduring relationship in a family. Second aspect of the divine. Marriage enables healthy procreation as part of the dominion assignment. Be fruitful and multiply. That does include childbearing, okay? Now, just let me say right up, well, no, I won't say that yet. All right. It is possible to have children outside of marriage, isn't it? Yeah. Duh. <laughs> okay. But the best situation for a child to be born into is a stable marriage. Okay. And that's this idea of healthy procreation. That's God's plan. That's God's intent that children be born into that. Okay. But the second idea, let me back up again because I just want to say it because it's so easy for me to zip by it. Again, if you're raising a child on your own, however that happened, once again, God is gracious. God's grace is sufficient. He will enable you to do whatever you need to do, okay? He, will, he is a father to the fatherless. And it doesn't say it, but I guess he's a mother to the motherless, probably. Right? So God is faithful and will work. But it doesn't mean there won't be difficulties. God's best is that it, children are born into a stable marriage. But I want you to think about this, too, just a little bit. And... Um, if we're thinking we're getting married to accomplish God's purposes and God says be fruitful and multiply so that you can exercise greater dominion, that starts to change our opinion on, well, how many children should we have? Now, it's real quiet in here right now. <laughs> Let me say to you that, you know, you, how many children you have and, and between you and God, that's all your business. That's not my point. I'm not, you know, you should have how many children you think God wants you to have and enables you to have. That's your call. But the idea is the, if I can raise one child to love God and serve him in life, I've just taken my area of dominion and influence and done what? Increased it. Well, what if I could do that with a second child? What if I could do that with a third child? You see what I'm saying? It's, 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 I'm not telling you how many of your children have. I really not. Please believe me. I'm not even judgmental. You, know, you have no kids. You have one kid. I'm not thinking anything about you. I'm just trying to tell you, let's think positive about having more kids. And, and I kind of, I'm a little bit sensitive in my life because we had six. Well, my wife had six, gave birth to six, and I helped to raise them. But... Um, 
Yeah, there were a few times and I've experienced, and I know that my daughter's family has experienced, they have seven. You get that, you know, uh, don't, do you know what causes this? You know? And the intimation is that why are you having so many kids, okay? And so I'm not going to judge you either way on that. I just want to encourage you that when we try to think about this biblically, that one of the reasons we have kids is not so we have a new possession, right? Or we got some new status because we got kids. I'm having kids for me. If you have kids for you, one day you'll go, why did I have these kids for me? But the idea is I'm having kids because I, I want to train them up to know God, to love God, and to serve Him in life. And I've just multiplied the dominion and the influence, okay? So just, that's countercultural for us, okay? All right, third thing, God's design for marriage. Marriage provides God's boundary for free expression of sexual desires and intimacy. And uh, we're going to actually focus on that next week's sermon when we talk about designer sex, okay? But that's God's boundary. The next one is this, that marriage is to portray God's image. Go ahead and go there, sir. Yeah, marriage is to portray God's image and the loving, respectful relationship between Christ and his church. We've already seen that, haven't we? Right? And this goes two ways. Uh, this is the idea, we saw this, this is because if we will think about Christ and the church and that relationship, that will help us know how to be married. But you know what, as you live being married and, and you are, are working through the issues that are inevitably there when you're married, it will also begin to give you some insight into what that other kind of love is and that other kind of relationship, Christ and the church, what is that like? Okay, and I just looked at the clock, man. The clock is zipping along. Married, uh, God's sign for marriage next one. Marriage is a powerful means of sanctification through mutual submission. Because when you get married, I promise you, you will end up dealing with things that you never, ever knew you would deal with. Because you're married. True? Very true. Okay, I don't need to say a lot more about that, I don't think. And God will use that in your life to shape you and grow you. So, let's do a quick review here. These five things. A core enduring relationship, healthy procreation, boundary for sex, to portray God's image and show Christ in the church, and then a means of sanctification. What happens when we don't start in Genesis and build from there? When we adopt something else and we do something different? And we have a different view of all these things. What happens? Well, the core enduring relationship doesn't endure anymore, right? People get out of that relationship and go to the next one. But the problem is, is they virtually never address the problems they had that caused the first problem. And they take it into the second marriage. And instead of taking three years to figure out, it takes three months. And they do it again. That's not absolute. But do you understand what I'm saying? At some point, somebody has to say, wait a minute, we've got to deal with the issues, okay? But so when we don't, lots of bad things happen and lots of good things don't. Healthy procreation. Once again, children, you know, who, who uh, don't have uh, two loving parents. Um, children who have multiple parents because of multiple marriages and, and interactions and all that. It just, it's, it's a challenge, okay? It creates difficulties for those children. Once again, if you're in that situation, God can work and overcome that in your life. Uh, the boundary for sex, we're gonna talk about that. That's certainly, by the way, sex is, is an amazing thing. I, I use this analogy today, probably use it again next week, but sex is like fire. 
fire, okay? And when fire is in the fireplace, it is a wonderful thing, isn't it? I love a fire in the fireplace. But when the fire gets out of the fireplace, it does damage. Okay, and so that's God's intent. All right, then, and, and by the way, our society, I, it's next week's sermon, sorry. Okay, God's image. You know, seeing God's image working together in that marriage relationship, seeing Christ in the church portrayed, when that is absent, when we don't have that mindset, and then there's, we begin to lack credibility for the gospel. You know, because it certainly isn't making a difference in your life, you know, and your marriage, all that. And then certainly a means of sanctification. We miss out. I already talked about that. We don't grow as we ought to. Now, having said all that about marriage, let me say this. Singleness is not a lesser choice. It's not a defective circumstance. If you find yourself single, it's not... A bad thing. You might say, well, I don't want to be single. That's okay. I get that. I want to be married. I understand. But you are not lesser as a single person. It can feel that way because here's what I know it happens because I've talked to, to people. You know, you're coming to church and you're the single persons or the single peoples. And somehow you just don't feel like you quite connect the same way as those people who are married. You know, you have a hard time sometimes. I understand how that happens. But I just want you to hear from God today, okay? You are not lesser. You are not defective if you are here and single. God has a purpose in your singleness. Okay, let's consider. I mentioned it earlier, but Jesus said some people will be single for various reasons. So Jesus said it's going to happen. In fact, let me just make a little footnote here. Jesus was single. The Apostle Paul was single. Now, whether he was ever married or not, we aren't sure, but he was single, okay? So there's nothing wrong with being single. Uh, secondly, a relationship with Christ is the core enduring relationship for human beings, okay? I said the husband and wife marriage is the core relationship in a family, but the core relationship for individual human beings is a relationship with God. That is absolutely available to every single person for you to grow in and, and, and have a satisfying fulfilling relationship with Christ, okay? And that's the next thing. Singles can openly show their relationship with Christ and his church. Go ahead and go to that if you would, Sergey. You're free to live out this open relationship. Can people learn about Christ and the church through you as an individual? Yeah, because you're going to live like the church toward the Lord, and so you can still portray that picture. And whatever your you know, male or female, the image of God, you can portray that and bring that to every area of life that you go into and, and influence the Lord for him. And then a relationship, or did I read? Oh, there we go. Sorry. Then singleness provides powerful opportunities for sanctification because just like I said, if you're married, that's going to put you in situations dealing with things that you never would have if you hadn't gotten married. Well, guess what? If you're single, that's going to bring you into situations and things that would never have happened to you were you married. And the, the reality is that God grows you through those things. He grows you in them into a, a very powerful relationship. And then finally, the Apostle Paul recommends singleness as a way of life. I kind of like the way he says, well, you don't sin if you get married. <laughs> but I kind of, I would I encourage you to be like me, he says. 
And then he just talks about the advantages and disadvantages of being married and being single. And there are, okay? I'm not going to sit here and try to elaborate on them, but just understand there are advantages to being married. There are advantages to being single. There are disadvantages to being married. There are disadvantages to being single when it comes to living our lives, okay? And so let me, um, just what you did with marriage, let's, let's talk about God's design for singleness. Singleness that is allowed or directed by God. Either way, it's just happening or God has led you to it. Singleness allowed or directed by God temporarily or permanently is designed to promote an exclusive intimate relationship between a person and God for the purpose of glorifying God by representing and serving him in the world. Boy, a lot of that sounds kind of similar, doesn't it? It's the same core issues played out in different arenas. Okay, singleness has a purpose, has a purpose. Now, let me just speak a little longer to you who are single and married people live in, listen in because there's things for you to learn, understand here. <sighs> go ahead and go to the next one if you would, Sergey. If you're not okay being single, you probably won't be okay being married. Okay, think that that sink in. If you're not okay being single, you probably won't be okay being married. Because if you're thinking, I gotta have a, a, a wife, or I can't, I won't be fulfilled, or I won't, I gotta have a husband, or I can't, oh, there's nothing wrong with wanting a wife, nothing wrong with wanting a husband. But if you think that they're gonna be God for you, they won't. If you go into marriage not being okay being single, you're gonna you know, be expecting from your spouse things that they can never give you. <laughs> An old friend of mine who deals with a lot of marriage counseling talks about people who come into marriage who aren't okay being single and they come together and he says they're like two ticks with no dog. <laughs> okay, does that make sense? All right, so. Here's the deal, if you're single, here's what you want, I want you to do. Focus your whole life on your relationship with Christ, growing in it and living it out. Make that be what your life is about. By the way, that's what we're all supposed to do. Make your whole life being about pursuing that relationship with Christ. And if God leads you to be married, you will be well prepared. Because you aren't going into marriage not okay, I'm okay being single, I'd like to be married, but I'm okay being single. And I have something to give now. I'm not going in as a tech. <laughs> I'm going in as a giver to this relationship, okay? And then if God never leads you to be married, you will also be well prepared because you will already be living that out. So what does this come down to for both married and unmarried? We have different roles to fill, different arenas in which we fulfill those things, but here's what it comes down to. Purpose in your heart to glorify the Lord by faithfully fulfilling the role he has entrusted to you. And if he sees fit to change your role, great. Okay, so married, fulfill the role. Single, fulfill the role. And leave where it goes to God. Exactly. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and thank you for your word and that you tell us about marriage. And Lord, we see how, 
how messed up our culture is becoming in this area because they've, they've turned away from what you've revealed to us. And, and I pray, Father, that we as your people would not do that. We wouldn't get caught up in that. That you'd help us to discern where we might have subtly turned away from your ways and that we would repent and turn back. For we know that uh, the greatest blessing in our life will be aligning our lives with you and your ways. I pray, Father, for anyone here today who's never started their relationship with you by receiving Jesus. I pray, Lord, that, that if they don't already understand how to do that or what that's about, I pray they'd reach out. We could help them. And Father, we want to glorify you with our lives by fulfilling whatever roles you've given us at any point in life. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.